Thank you. Uh, thanks, Ali, for that lovely prayer. We're actually only looking at two verses tonight, so you covered it all. Now, we'll actually do a bit more than two verses. And in fact, we'll mention the whole chapter, but we're going to concentrate on two verses. So why don't I pray that God would help us understand what he's saying to us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this chapter in Romans. Thank you that it reminds us that we need to respond to what you've done for us. Help us to unpack it tonight, to see right response and then not just to see it, but to do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the picture of Annabelle we took earlier. Oh, no, it's not really. <laughs> Although we do have in the morning congregation, I know a, a lady would be quite happy doing that. Uh, she's pregnant at the moment, but that's what she gets, that's what she likes doing. Um, we're going to look at the topic of commitment and ask the question, what does real commitment look like? Well, here's two guys uh, that are uh, committed. Anyone know their names? Boys, do you know their names? One's Tim Cahill, very good, but who's the other? Bernard Tomic, that's right. Uh, one's a tennis player, one's a footy player, and this guy, uh, Tim Cahill, has got his last game on Tuesday night. Everyone's hoping that he gets a, a good shot at goal. Uh, what do they have in common, these two? Well, they're both elite sportsmen. Uh, they both get paid an exorbitant amount to perform. Uh, <clears throat> physically fit. Uh, the coaches try to make them mentally tough. Uh, but their attitudes differ. Uh, one's known uh, to put his lifestyle before uh, the way he plays. And sometimes he's known to give up when it gets hard. The other would die on the field for the cause. Both have represented Australia and one never stops trying every game and he's an encouragement to others. <clears throat> and both committed themselves to their respective sports but only one, you could say, is truly and deeply committed. When we look at the book of Romans, Paul now encourages us in chapter 12 to be truly and deeply committed. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Uh, this is such a packed little section, we want to try to unpack it tonight and it might take us a, a little bit of time to do that. So let's look at it under four headings. Here's the first one. What's the basis of our commitment? Now, I don't know when in primary school, perhaps in secondary school at sport or PE, you made up human pyramid uh, and you get kids kneeling down and other kids on top of them and then you get a little kid up the top. Usually it's the big kids down the bottom and they're told they're very important, they've got to hold the, the whole structure up. Then you get the bony kids next who stick, manage to stick every bone they've got into your back and then the little monkey up the top. Now, if you don't like the kid up the top, you can always collapse the pyramid and hope he falls the hardest. But usually the idea is to keep the pyramid uh, in its shape. But the base has to be strong. So what's the base for Christian uh, work? What's the basis? Well, Paul tells us in these verses... 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Now, what's the mercy of God? Well, we've seen it so far in the book of Romans. It's all those things leading up to this chapter. Paul tells us in chapters 1 and 2 that uh, there's no one righteous. Uh, no one understands. No one seeks God. Even the good person is never good enough. And the person who says, like, I'm right with God because I'm a Jew, God says, no, you're not right with God either. We're all in the same boat. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But into this desperate situation, God provides a way in sending Jesus. And Jesus' death makes a way where we can become righteous through faith and given a great and glorious hope that we see in chapter 8 where we finished off our book reading last time. These are the mercies of God on which we now base our action. This is a theology that undergirds practice. Those of us that were at the house party would have seen it also as we looked at Colossians. Chapters 1 and 2 give us a theology, what Jesus is like and who he is and what he's done. Chapter 3 starts off, Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts and minds on the things above. Put off the old self, put on the new self. Be humble, be kind, be compassionate and so on. See, our call as Christians is to be fully and totally uh, made on the basis of the massive goodness and grace of God. We are responding to what God has done for us. And here's the point, and I want you to try and grasp it tonight. The greater our understanding of what Jesus has done leads to greater commitment. If we have a limited understanding, we're going to limit our commitment because we don't think it's that good. But as we grow in grace throughout our life and we learn more and more about what God has done for us, we'll want to be more like him and grow in that commitment. The world has conned us into thinking that the uh, meaning of life is happiness. It's about having fun and just enjoying yourself and perhaps not offending too many people along the way. I think as Christians we've got to consciously and firmly reject that notion and contemplate what Jesus has done for us over and over and over again, thinking about what God has done. Isaac Watts puts it so well in that hymn, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. See, the goal of life for Christians is Christ-likeness. Happiness might be a byproduct of that, but it's not the goal. And the call here is that I urge you, Paul says, uh, in the original language, it's much stronger than that. It's more like, I require you. This, this, is, this is a required action when you look at God's mercies. This is what you need to do. There's no options here. There's no other option apart from full discipleship, full commitment to following Jesus. So that's the basis of our commitment. How about the character of commitment? What does it look like? Well, again, the next couple of verses, we see this. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Uh, this goes back to the Old Testament, doesn't it? To the sacrificial system, where to be right with God, you had to offer a, an unblemished animal. And here we're told that the sacrifice is a living sacrifice. It's, it's ourselves. Uh, the word body here is not just describing skin and bones. Uh, the original goes deeper than that. It's talking about the totality of all that we are. And living 
implies the fact that we have a newness of life in Christ and holy, we've been purged of sin by Jesus' death. Acceptable, because Jesus died for us, we're right with God. So the call is for this. It's a total, complete allegiance to Jesus. That's what Paul's wanting here. And it's logical. It makes sense. It says here it's our, our spiritual or reasonable uh, response to what God has done. It makes sense that we follow Jesus in this way. You really can't be a believer, can you? And look at these verses and decide to have a half-hearted attempt at being a Christian. That, that's not the right response. This is the only way to live, Paul is saying. So the basis is the mercy of God. The character is a total and logical discipleship, which leads us to the demands. What does God actually want from us? Well, again, we've seen these verses, these words. Do not confirm conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, two demands, one's positive, one negative. Don't be conformed. Again, the original language has this idea of scheming, of um, sort of getting together and, and working through a, a pattern of what you're going to do in life. And the word world is not just a planet and its people. It's got the Hebrew idea of uh, a, a, an evil age, the Hebrews believed in this age and the age to come, and this age is the, is the evil age in which we live. So the thought here is this. Don't be conformed to the schemes of this passing world. Now, none of us escapes this. The world is right in front of us. It's right at our doorstep, and we're always being subtly sucked in and influenced by it. But we need to be critical of the lifestyle choices that are constantly put before us. From the presuppositions behind shows like Married at First Sight and The Bachelor and the spin-off, The Bachelorette, to work practices, to the way we approach kids' sport, to product purchases, all of these things need to be thought through before secular culture just sweeps us along and it's tied. Paul says, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word here is metamorphia. Uh, from which we get our word metamorphosis. Caterpillar to butterfly, tadpole to frog. It's a, it's a huge change, isn't it? But the New Testament takes this word and goes even deeper than that. It's only used four times in the New Testament. Once here, once in 2 Corinthians in that reading we had before, and twice in the Gospels when it describes Jesus' transfiguration. That time when Jesus went up the mountain with a couple of disciples and he was transfigured. Um, his face shone like the sun. His clothes glowed with brightness. Uh, the inner essence was seen coming out. He was just not skin and bones. And uh, Paul is saying here that's what needs to happen to us. There needs to be a metamorphosis going on in our own lives. We keep the same form, but there's a change that shines through our life. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul, again, writing to the Corinthians this time, another church, says these words, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Paul has been describing Moses going up into the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. When he came back, 
His face shone like the sun. He had to wear a veil to cover it. But the more he stayed down with the people, the more the brightness left. But becoming a Christian means the brightness begins to grow and grow and glow in our own lives as Jesus transforms us from the inside out. How does he do this? By renewing our mind with the Holy Spirit. So it's a no and a yes. It's a no to the passing schemes of this world. It's a yes to the Holy Spirit building a life of Christ in us and working out how we might be changed. So what are the effects then of all of this? What are the results? Well, again, in these first two verses, Paul puts it this way. Then, after this, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. With full and total commitment comes the ability to know what God wants us to do. Not that you can work out who you're going to marry or what job you're going to have in the future. It's not like that old year of an Old Testament prophet uh, sort of looking into the future. It's just knowing the will of God as we read it in the Bible. As we grow closer to Jesus, we begin to have his mind, we begin to see his priorities, and we know what's good and what's bad and what's not. We learn about Christ and we know the mind of God. And when we're totally committed to Jesus, you know where you're heading, you know where you're going, you have an assurance that the uncommitted, careless Christian does not have. So these are the effects. And they're all built on top of each other, aren't they? The effects are built on the demands, don't conform, be transformed, which in turn built on the, uh, the character of being committed, there's living sacrifices to God, and the foundation, of course, is the mercies of God, what God has done for us. It's the most absurd thing to do, then, as a Christian, to have a half-hearted approach to your faith. You're either full on or you're not, you're not at all. You can't be sort of half-hearted and say, well, you know, I can do a little bit for God, but I'm not going to do everything. I'm not going to get totally involved in it all. That sort of thinking just doesn't make sense in the light of these verses. Well, let's assume for a minute they were all totally committed. I don't know if that's true for you, but let's just assume that. Paul's doing that now, and he's going to go on verses 3 to 8 and say, okay, if you're totally committed, here's the way I want you to, to work out life. I want you to think about yourself. I want you to think about the church in which you live, and I want you to think about the gifts that you have and how you're going to use them. So let's begin with ourselves. What does he say? Verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Don't overestimate yourself, says Paul. Don't big note yourself. Don't become a legend in your own mind. That just leads to pride and bragging. Don't think you've got all the gifts and you can do everything. On the other hand, don't self-deprecate. Don't say, oh, I'm a nobody. I'm not good. I, everyone else has got better gifts than me. I, I can't sing like that. I, I could never stand up in public. I couldn't do that. Don't compare yourself with others. Use Jesus as your standard. Jesus says himself, blessed are the poor in spirit. They have a right estimate of themselves. They're humble. Went bowling with a couple of guys the other night. We had a great time. About 20 of us were pretty rowdy. They had the security guard there watching. 
Well, what he would have seen was there was no bragging and people did better than others, but they didn't brag, they didn't chest beat, they didn't talk about how good they were. That wasn't on the cards. In fact, there was a lot of encouragement, especially coming from Paul. He was quite loud. So when we think rightly about ourselves, we're able to think rightly about the body of Christ and the believers that we share life with. So let's have a look at verses 4 to 5. For just of each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. It's a wonderful illustration that Paul uses a couple of times in his letters. He talks about the unity we have because we all share the same nature, that glow we have of the spirit living in us and making us more Christ-like. And we've got diversity. It's a mark of uh, God's handiwork in nature that things are different. It's a mark of God's handiwork in the church that we're all different. We're not all the same. We're not all unique. As we look to Christ as standard, we're liberated to be ourselves. We don't all have to dress and talk and walk like Stuart or Michael or whoever else is up the front. That's not our example. That's not our standard. We're free in Christ to be ourselves and allow others to be their selves. And as we do this, the whole body of believers benefits. Paul goes on in these next couple of verses from 9 following to talk about the benefits. Let me read some of them to you. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. This is how you live your life as a Christian in the church. You do stuff for others. It's impossible to be a Christian alone. That just doesn't make logical sense. Often people say, well, I can be a Christian. I don't have to meet with God's people. But you do. It's just part and parcel of the deal that you have with God. The best place, I think, to do this is in a life group. If you haven't joined one, let me encourage you to do that. Perhaps wait till next year when they start again, but it's a great time where you can share and live in harmony and talk about the things that are real and grieve with those who are mourning and laugh with those who've got a good joke to tell and you have a meal together as well, which is great. This is how you do life together, says Paul. So know yourself, know you're part of the body and finally that allows us to use the gifts that we have. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, we haven't got time to go into any details here about uh, these gifts, This is just one of a number of lists that Paul uses and there's probably some more gifts that he doesn't even describe here. Uh, All are to be used humbly for the benefit of others, not with pride nor with false humility. Each of us is gifted. Find your gift and use it in the service of God's people. Being a committed Christian is not an optional extra in the light of what we've just seen. It's a right response to a God who's reached down and saved us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was uh, captured by the Nazis in World War II and 
died shortly after he penned these words, said this, it's only because Jesus became like us that we can become like him. That's our aim, isn't it? It's not the pursuit of happiness. We're not after power or prestige, but rather to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, pursuing a life that's been transfigured, a life lived for others, and a life that reflects the one who saved us. I want to finish by offering you a chance to actually put this into practice. Up the back you'll see this little sheet. Uh, I think there's copies up there where the Bibles are kept. And it asks us to think about how we might use our time, talents and treasure uh, next year in our church. If you're not a partner, there's a section there that says, look, i really love to get involved. Let me tick uh, the partnership course. I'm going to do a course next year to find out what all these other things are down the bottom. If you're a partner, let me encourage you to tick one of the, or more of the boxes down there about serving, either with uh, music, our food care ministry, our scripture teaching, uh, playtime ministry, mops, our youth, a whole range of things. And then underneath that, there's a bit that says, look, I really want to start giving regularly and generously to the church. This is what I'd like to do. If you'd like to take one of these tonight and pray about it and fill it in and bring it back and put it in the uh, little letterbox next week, that'd be great. Uh, so we can start to do life together and share the load in this church. Uh, after we have some questions, there's this little card we'd like you to fill in as well. There's just outlines that you've been here tonight, so we, we, we know we don't have to chase you up if you've been missing for a couple of weeks. And uh, also you can write down any questions or prayer requests. And again, just leave that in the box up the back.